from New York City. This is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Coming up on this week's show, Matt and I pour ourselves some tequila and invite over all our preferred podcast listeners for a karaoke jam to Jefferson Airplane as we explore the dark depths of Ben Stiller's The Cable Guy. We'll also bring you our picks for the most interesting new and expiring streaming titles. But first up is Q Shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme and inspired by The Cable Guy, or The Cable Guy! (laughs) This week, we decided to list some movies in which people unknowingly sleep with prostitutes. But then we thought, you know, that's just so over-discussed. And really, it's almost too relatable. Yeah, I something mean, that everyone's who, had to deal with in their lives. Hasn't right. So why that. not instead continue a theme we touched on in our last episode when we were talking about Take This Waltz and look at films from actors turned directors. And before we get to the conversation, Allison, let's just say Film Spotting SVU now has its own feed in iTunes, which you should subscribe to because this episode is going to be the last one that is available in the main Film Spotting feed. So if you're listening to us because you downloaded the podcast from your main film spotting feed and you're enjoying the show and want to continue enjoying the show, make sure you go to iTunes, type in film spotting or film spotting streaming video unit, and make sure you subscribe to the film spotting streaming video unit podcast feed. Again, this is the last episode. This is your last warning before you will be left without SVU. Which would be terrible. Yeah, we don't want that. You don't want that. So just make sure you subscribe in iTunes to our new Film Spotting SVU feed. And don't do a search for SVU because it may not come up. You need to search for Film Spotting or the full title. Okay, actors turn directors, Allison. Anything we want to say in a general way before we get to cue shots where we'll give you some picks? Uh, only that, uh, in terms of when I was looking through some of the possible picks for uh, cue shots, I really am drawn to, they're not always the best movies in this category, which includes some great talent, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, Clint Eastwood, you have uh, more recently Ben Affleck's done some interesting things, Sean Penn. But I, I'm always interested in the actor who chooses just a really unusual project, one that you'd be like, you know, that's never what I would have guessed as, as an established actor, when you finally get to direct your own film, that's what you choose. Can you give me an example? Well, I mean, even Angelina Jolie, mm. you know, for her first film doing In the Land of Blood and Honey. I mean, she's certainly been involved in kind of activism and in international activism. But still to have your first film be about, you know, a kind of heavy romantic drama set during the Bosnian War, not in English... Not, you know, uh, the most immediate choice you might come up with for... uh, The Star of Salt. Exactly. Or Edward Norton, Keeping the Faith. You know, not maybe the film that you would guess when you think about Edward Norton, particularly at that time when he had done all of these very kind of flashy roles uh, that he was going to do a lighthearted, a lighthearted romantic religious, comedy. religious themed romantic religious comedy themed romantic comedy yeah yeah that was a weird choice wasn't it, it he was. certainly never made any other movie that comes to mind with any sort of major religious themes no. so why for your big debut as a director would you pick keeping the faith or romantic comedies as you said he's not exactly a romantic comedy guy you're right that is kind of an interesting thing my one defense i guess of the angelina jolie path that you cited although i haven't seen that movie so i can't defend that movie it's an interesting movie well but you do see that a lot though you do see when you say like an inexplicable choice you often see the actor who is making some sort of statement maybe not necessarily political but some sort of statement about their 
artistry, right? That they've somehow been pigeonholed as one sort of person. Like in the case of Angelina Jolie, she's just a, a sex bomb or she's some sort of you know, very sensual on-screen goddess or whatever you want to say. And here she's like, well, no, I actually care very deeply about these sorts of issues, like Except, sexuality in Bosnia or exactly. something. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Like, it is actually like a pretty sexy and dark film. In a, it's vaguely Night Porter-ish mm-hmm. in, its, in the way its relationship develops. Right. So, you know, it is set in this very real and like very horrifically portrayed time. But right. it is also about... So that I can understand if you're yeah. a, an actor who feels like you're not being able to tell serious enough stories to then with your directorial debut tell one of those very serious stories in the case of edward norton i don't i don't know what's going on there. the opposite i've been made to make too many serious interesting movies and all i really want to do is make a frivolous romantic comedy about a rabbi and a priest and a girl caught in the middle i don't know yeah any I, any other any other general thoughts you want to say only that it seems like there are a lot of like first projects coming up that mm-hmm. I'm interested in, like that Ryan Gosling has his directorial debut lined up. I don't know what it's about. Or Joseph Gordon-Levitt does as well. I'm always interested in seeing what someone who, you know, has been acting for a while, particularly with those two who are both, uh, they were child stars, right. to see what they come up with as uh, to finally get to make their own movie, yeah. what that's going to mean. Well, we'll have to revisit this topic in uh, a few months or years, perhaps, and when, when we can talk about their movies. Indeed. My, my overall thoughts, I think, are going to actually be contained in the movies I chose because I sort of was looking at different directors and sort of looking at different kind of models of the way that these sorts of movies can turn out, and I kind of picked three different types of actors turned directors i felt like so i guess i'll get to mine in in due time do you want to start with your first pick sure all right i will start with the station agent which is available for rent on voodoo uh, that's v-u-d-u it's not one of our sites we tend to look at as often but it is written and directed by Thomas McCarthy. It was his directorial debut. McCarthy's been acting for two decades, uh, though he's he's kind of a hey, it's that guy actor. I, I don't think that there are many of his roles that you'd be like, oh, of course, that. He might be best known as the reporter Scott Templeton in the final season of The Wire or the football coach Kevin Riley in Boston Public, if you watch that. But he's directed... Did I watch it? I'm sure you I did. I watched the hell out of it. <laughs> All the crossover episodes as well with the practice. Oh, God. I, I think there were. I don't know. I have no idea. I'm just. I'm just sounds good. I though. was lying. McCarthy has directed three films so far: The Station Agent, The Visitor, and Win Win. And all are the fil- the kind of films that have descriptions that make them sound like potential sentimental horror shows. A uh, little person who's a train hobbyist befriends oddballs when he moves to rural New Jersey. Widowed professor befriends two illegal immigrants who've been tricked into renting what's actually his apartment. <laughs> You know, financially troubled lawyer takes in a uh, angry teenager with great wrestling talent, uh, but they're actually all warm and much more complicated <laughs> films. They, than you're they right; sound. they all sound horrible. They sound horrible. I like all of them. They sound and yeah, they sound horrible. They sound horrific. I, you know, and I think that's really all due to McCarthy's talent. He's not just a great director of actors, which is something we talked about uh, in the last episode with in terms of Take This Waltz. That many that many uh, actors who then get to direct to to the better and worse, depending on the context, do pay a lot of attention to performances and give a lot of space to performances. Finn is about to start a new life. Where do you live? In the depot. What grade are you in? I'm finished with school. Oh. Olivia is leaving her old life behind. 
I'm so sorry. Can I give you a ride somewhere? No. You sure? Yes. How you doing? And Joe. Do you sell coffee? Where are you from? Hoboken. I live in Manhattan, dude. Just doesn't have a life. I've been here for six weeks. It's driving me crazy. But together. Hey, how you doing out there? We don't have to talk. We can just eat. Okay. They're trying to get their lives back on track. This was fun, right? And I think in the case of these films, he gives a lot of space to very quiet and really amazing performances and also a lot of attention to character. These are characters who could be pigeonholed into something sentimental, Mm. something a little easy, and are not at all. They're very rich and very human. And I still think that The Station Agent is his best of the three, though I also like them all. It stars Peter Dinklage as Finbar McBride, who is uh, a little person who's really kind of retreated from much human contact. Even the name. Finbar, I know. Makes me angry. You can't really, you can't name your child that. (laughs) It's like an extra burden. (laughs) Um, But I apologize to any Finbars out there. Uh, (laughs) He's left a piece of property uh, with an abandoned train depot on it by the man who's really been his only friend. And he goes out to live there and in the process befriends uh, Bobby Cannavale, Patricia Clarkson play these characters out there who are going through their own personal problems and are drawn together uh, and really, their their friendships are so funny and well-drawn. And uh, it, there's a real pleasure taken in just the time they spend together. Particu- I mean, like, both the actors, all three of the actors are great. But I, I'm particularly fond of Bobby Cannavale's character, who is this... Uh, he's like a Cuban-American guy who just can't stop talking and can't bear not to be around people. He's just so effusive and such a people person that even when he's driving like these other characters who are much more introverted, insane, he just needs to be around them all the time. He's very funny. Uh, so uh, that's The Station Agent, which is, if you haven't seen it, if you thought it sounds really too cute, it's not too cute. And it's got a great performance from Peter Dinklage, who you know has gotten a lot of attention lately for Game of Thrones. Uh, you know, deservedly. This was his breakout role. But this was his breakout role, and uh, it's a really good one. And I, you know, I think that it shows his range and uh, just his talent in a way that you know he's really deserved the kind of attention he's gotten lately. Okay. So that's the station agent. It's available for rent on Vudu. Okay. Well, this makes a nice pairing because my first choice is in that sort of mode you were talking about the director as the as the guy who really understands actors and makes a movie where it's really about acting. Acting is front and center and you get great performances and maybe not a whole lot else, but the acting is just so phenomenal. That's like the big visual pyrotechnic of the movie is just the the quality of the acting. And mine is the 1990 film Misery, directed by mm-hmm. Rob Reiner, who, of course, was the son of the famous comedian Carl Reiner. Got his start as an actor actually doing uh, some roles on television and also in his dad's movies. I guess that doesn't hurt. I'm sure at the time, the whatever preexisted the internet, I don't recall a time before the internet, but whatever was around, people were writing angry letters about nepotism and how he wouldn't have had his shot if not for his famous father. I'm sure that's how it uh, went I'm back sure then. I'm sure that definitely happened back then. Right. Absolutely. Always. Always. Absolutely. But anyway, he, of course, became most famous as an actor on All in the Family. He played Archie Bunker's son-in-law. And after that, he started making films as a director. His first film, This Is Spinal Tap. Mm. I heard, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. vaguely familiar with yeah. it, too. Not a bad first film. Yeah, it's okay. It's a pretty good start. <laughs> then he made The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, and then Misery. And when you read that list, you know, you don't think of Rob Reiner as a great director. I don't, you don't ever, I've never read a piece 
Rob Reiner, the great American filmmaker. Right. And then you look at the list of movies he's made, at least in the beginning of his career, he's got some classics in there. Yeah, some and I feel like some classics. Like, like Harry, um, when Harry Met Sally has grown so much in reputation over yeah. the years, I feel like it gets cited as one of the great romantic comedies Certainly of that era. amongst the, all the, the great time. romantic comedies of its era, if not of all time. Yeah. Stand By Me movie that everyone has seen. Princess Bride, another one that's like an iconic children's film. So maybe it's time for the full-on reappraisal of Rob Reiner. But that will have to wait for a later, a later date. Right now we're talking about Misery, which is about a novelist uh, played by James Caan. And, of course, his, his rival, his nemesis in this film is Kathy Bates, who won the Academy Award for Best Actress. She plays Annie Wilkes, the unforgettable uh, fan. And the film is essentially about... Uh, the novelist character is in this horrible car accident, and he's rescued. It just so happens by this insane fan, his biggest fan, his biggest fan, and she's sort of nursing him back to health. He's like completely all his, you know, is, is just totally reeled with injuries, and it's in the woods, and it's a snowstorm, so she can't move him. She's got to nurse him back to health, or so she claims. And while he's convalescing in her home, the latest book in this long-running series he's written about a character named Misery comes out. And lo and behold, this is, this is the book where James Conn's character kills off Misery, much to the horror of <laughs> Annie Wilkes, who does not react well to this news. Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours, but the Misery novels. You must be a good man. You could never have created such a wondrous, loving creature as Misery Chastain. Very kind. The presumption must now be that Paul Sheldon is dead. You dirty bird. How could you? Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Misery spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you murdered her! You don't think he's dead, do you? And don't even think about anybody coming for you, because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. It's a movie that was good when it came out, and I feel like is so ahead of its time. Oh, and so ahead of its time. even <laughs> more valuable as a film now, because it, it essentially invents... The figure of the internet fanboy. Yes. I mean, down to the letter. This The character who thinks they know more about a text than the author. Who and has thinks, more of a right to it. Yes, and believes that they have just as much of a right to the path of this character as the author does. Just because you wrote it doesn't mean that you... You right. know, you, because, it like, belongs to you. Right. I, I read it. I love it. And I love it. And I have a shrine <laughs> above my fireplace to right. it. So it's mine. So it's mine. <laughs> exactly. And being possessive and also kind of scary about it, I think, really kind of hits that stereotypical fanboy image right on the head. And this is, what, what 1990? So it's years before this stereotype came to be, uh, based on the Stephen King novel, of course. So I'm sure he knew a thing or two about obsessive fans, but you have to figure Rob Reiner probably did too, being on one of the biggest sitcoms of all time, probably could relate to, I'm sure met some weird fans in his day, and I think brought a lot of that to the film. And of course, it really is a two-person film. There's a couple other small parts, but just great, great performances in this battle of the wills between these two characters. And a director who wasn't an actor maybe might not have made such a, a great job adapting this book to film. So that's Misery, and it is available on Netflix Instant. All right. My next pick is uh, the kind of project that 
can go wrong, but in this case went right, which is the the passion project that an actor has always wanted to star in and was unable to necessarily get made until they made it happen oh, themselves and directed you give, it themselves. I'll make your terrible movie about a karate fighting Gila monster if, if right, you I can fund find my movie about a man and his relationship with a non-karate fighting panda bear. Exactly. Okay. My, my passion project <laughs> about a panda bear friendship. Okay. All yeah. right. Let me just say, I do, if anyone's interested, I do have a script <laughs> I wrote on spec about a man and his love of a panda bear. It's terrifying. Black but, and white and loved all over. I'm sure. Oh, my called. God. That's Just, horrible. You know, um, write yes. to us if you're interested. Well, my, my, my pick is The Apostle, 1997 film on Netflix. Uh, watch instantly. Written and directed by Robert Duvall. No pandas in that one. No, none that I can think of, can though. Recall. They might have snuck one in at the end. Deleted. It was deleted. Deleted, deleted scene. scene. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he stars as Sonny Dewey. And, uh, you know, I've actually written before at the AV Club about my frustration with uh, what seemed to be particularly recently some kind of like condescending portrayals of faith, particularly of Christianity in independent films, which is, you know, an outcome of our current culture wars. But uh, usually when a character, especially in an independent film, is shown to be actively religious, it's because they're going to be revealed as a bigot or a villain or a vicious hypocrite or a crazy person. And this is really the antithesis of that kind of film. It's about a, uh, a Pentecostal minister played by uh, Robert Duvall, who is, is a very flawed guy to the point where he is getting kicked out of his marriage and his church uh, in the beginning of the film because he's cheated on his wife, played by Farrah Fawcett. But it's a very even-handed look at faith and also at like Pentecostal religion in particular at like what a sermon would be like, like a very fiery, you know, impassioned sermon in which the whole church shouts. And uh, it's a really interesting film, both in terms of one set in that world and as a, as a portrait of someone who has genuine passionate faith, but is also incredibly flawed. You know, it's not, he's not a hypocrite. He is someone who is fighting to both, do the right thing and to bring people onto the path of what is the right thing, but is also a guy who, you know, has a wandering eye, as he said, that ruined his marriage, who then goes on the run for, for killing someone. So, you know, not really keeping to the narrow path there. To a small southern town, he came as a stranger. So where are you from? You name it, I've been there. I, I got a little bit everywhere. I sell out my first two wives. Marked by a mystery. Well, I'm the apostle EF. Believe it or not, the Lord sent me to have fellowship with you. You say God led you to me, and not to anybody else? Yes, sir, I do believe that. Yes, sir. Why should I trust you? The Lord knows what you could have been or done in the past. Haunted by a secret. I don't want to live like this anymore. Because of my wandering eye and wicked, wicked ways. I certainly know as much about what you do and have done as you think I do. I'm touched by a power. Since I was a little boy, you brought me back from the dead. I'm your servant. What kind of preacher are you anyway? And you name it, I, I can do it. Duvall actually wrote the script for this uh, in the 80s and then couldn't find a studio willing to film it and then ended up directing and financing it himself. And you can see how this was not necessarily an easy commercial sell. 
I want to make a film about a Pentecostal minister who finds redemption, you know, on the road. In the by... arms of a karate fighting Gila monster. And a panda. Yeah. Or you could say in a small rundown town in oh. rural, rural Louisiana. Or that. Yes. Um, but, you know, this became like a, a big hit, at least in terms of small dramas. And uh, was, you know, bitted on at festivals. Uh, and it's just like a, a great, uh, a great bit of acting. And I think that Duval does a great job of directing himself, which is no easy feat, particularly in something that could potentially be very showy like this. Uh, it shows off, I think, this incredible range he has and complexity in this character. But it's also a very restrained film in its look and how it portrays its characters. And it has some uh, a lot of non-professional actors in there. And, uh, you know, in gen it, just, it feels much more genuine than you think that a film like this could feel. It, you know, it doesn't feel anthropological. It doesn't feel like it's being like, look at this crazy, you know, aspect of the world you don't usually see in a film. So uh, that is The Apostle. And that is uh, streaming on Netflix. Okay. My next actor turned director you actually mentioned at the top of the show. It is Clint Eastwood. And for me, he epitomizes the actor turned director who wants to sort of reappraise their career as a director and reinterrogate the things that they've already covered. So you think of Clint Eastwood, the actor, we think of movies like Fistful of Dollars and A Few Dollars More and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry. These movies yeah. where he sort of plays like the, the character of moral certitude. It's like he is judge, jury, and executioner, sometimes literally, in these worlds, right? Everyone is a sinner and evil, and he walks through it with this attitude of like moral certitude. Like, I know what's right and I know what's wrong, and as long as I grit my teeth and take out my magnum, all will be right with the world. You know, like, that's him... Uh, pretty much in a lot of the movies that he acted in. But then, especially sort of in the second half of his career as a director, you see him making all these movies that are not so sure, that are not so certain about the morality of violence. And one of the movies, there's not a ton of his movies that are available on instant, but one that is that I think shows this very well is the 2006 film Letters from Iwo Jima, which was the second half of a two-part diptych uh, about World War II and the Battle of Iwo Jima, one from the perspective of the American soldiers and one from the perspective of the Japanese soldiers. And that's what Letters from Iwo Jima is. And what's so interesting is you think about the guy in those early movies and you say, can you imagine a Dirty Harry diptych where one movie is about the guy who goes around slaughtering criminals with his magnum, uh, making sure that he corrects the mistakes of the justice system and then the other half of is the criminal's perspective and how horrible their lives were and why they were somewhat justified in their behavior. Hard to imagine. But that's essentially what he did here was to say this war is not as easily defined as these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. And he shows this kind of surprising amount of empathy about what it was like on either side of the war and how horrible it was for everyone involved. In the American film, in Flags of Our Fathers, the we never see the Japanese soldiers, and they seem to be everywhere. You know, there's lots of gunfire and firefights, and we just get this sense that it's this huge mythic enemy. 
And then when you see this film, you get the sense that it was almost like they were ghosts. It was like they were all basically the walking dead, essentially, that their lives were over already. And in terms of that idea of a guy like Eastwood reappraising himself, there is also a really interesting character who was a Olympian. He, he competed in the 1932 Olympics. And so he knows, because he's been there, that a lot of the propaganda that he has been, you know, sort of force-fed about America is false. But he keeps fighting anyway. But it does call to mind this idea of how much of what we think about criminals, about, you know, other countries, about wars, is, is defined by the way it's represented in the media and how often these people are vilified uh, as propaganda and not as truth. So I think it's interesting because... Yeah, Eastwood was the guy who made so many glorifications of violence. And this movie is – I don't know what the word for the opposite of glorification is, but that's what this movie is. So that's Letters from Iwo Jima, and it is also available on Netflix. All right. My last pick is Easy Rider, 1969. It is on Crackle for free for streaming and it is directed by dennis hopper it was his first directorial effort written by him and his co-star in the film peter fonda along with terry southern is you know a landmark counterculture film famous for its depictions of the culture of the time for its depictions of drug use but really summing up a moment i mean 1969 for using rock music music, uh, as score yeah the protagonists are two freewheeling hippies wyatt played by fonda and and Billy, played by Dennis Hopper, and they go on a search for freedom and also to head to New Orleans for Mardi Gras after making money smuggling cocaine into the country and selling it to Phil Spector. Uh, and they do things, you know, it's very kind of loose and episodic. Uh, plot is not the main driving point. They pick up a hitchhiker. They stop by a commune. They get thrown in jail for parading without a permit. They make friends with Jack Nicholson. Uh, They do LSD in a cemetery in New Orleans with two prostitutes. And as you said, Matt, it's famous for its amazing soundtrack. I didn't have time to rewatch the whole movie, but I was rewatching this part where they drive through the painted desert and they're playing The the Weight by the band. And it's just amazing. It really is. Like in terms of ever attempting to capture that sense of like of really like weightlessness, like uh, of freedom. And that that scene is amazing for that. This is a film that was not shot in a traditional fashion. A lot of the lines were ad-libbed. There were multiple fights with people along the way, including the production crew, including Rip Torn, who was cast in a role that eventually was replaced by Jack Nicholson. Uh, I think that when they came to the licensing of the music, it ended up costing something like more than the actual budget of the film because there were so many songs in there that needed to be licensed, but they're so important to the film. And... You know, despite all of these things, despite this being uh, a like a production that was just so unlikely, it ended up being a uh, you know a giant success, both in terms of uh, did well uh, in terms of theaters and it did well amongst the critics, and it really remains a, a landmark depiction of its era. Though it did, uh, and you know, is often credited for ushering in a new era in terms of filmmaking in Hollywood, or at least marking it. The side effect of this was that it uh, gave Hopper the chance to direct another film over which he was given complete creative control, uh, which was 1971's The Last Movie, which is not, unfortunately, streaming anywhere. That's too bad. It's it's not that easy to see. Oh, God, it's so great (laughs) It's amazing. It's, I mean... (laughs) 
it's really it looks like someone who was given cre- complete creative control who really should not have been well, given. Well, I would say it looks like someone who's been given complete creative control and a ton of drugs. Just tons and tons oh, of drugs. Oh, so many drugs. Yeah, and like only the vaguest idea of what they have they want to do when they were just like, "Now, let's do this." And then all the locals will create fake movie cameras and parade around. It's just a jumble of insane ideas. Uh, and that actually, you know, Hopper wasn't able to direct an, another film for like over a decade after that. So um, so it goes to show you, no matter how good your directorial debut can be, you can mess it up immediately afterwards. Easy Rider is one of those films that is such a cultural artifact that it's, it's nice to see that it also holds up as a a really interesting film outside of that aspect. And I, I do think it does. And a kind of exhilarating film, even though it ends on a, a not hopeful note. What was that, man? What, was, what the hell was that, man? Huh? No, man. Like, hey, man, wow, I was watching this object, man. Like, like the satellite that we saw the other night, right? And like it was just going right across the sky, man. And then, I mean, it just suddenly, uh, <laughs> it just changed direction and went uh, whizzing right off, man. <laughs> it flashed. You're stoned out of your mind, man. But that is Easy Rider, and it is available on Crackle. All right, that's a good one. That's a really good one. If, and I liked your point about Dennis Hopper being given a lot of creative control because that was my last type of actor-turned-director that I wanted to use, which was the actor-turned-director who needs more control, who's not satisfied just being the actor and gets in trouble and then eventually gets to become the director as well and one of the iconic actor turn directors and also actor slash directors that would be charlie chaplin and there are a lot of charlie chaplin movies available online um actually if you're not too up on your chaplain and you do have hulu you should go or hulu plus i should say definitely go and check it out because they have a ton including the kids city lights modern times the gold rush the great dictator a lot of his features are on there um, I picked a movie, though, or a short, which is available on Fandor, which I thought was kind of appropriate given our topic, and it's called The Masquerader, and it plays as like a 10-minute nightmare of what a actor-turned-director hates about being just the actor, and it's, so it's sort of the explanation. This, is, this was the 10th short that Chaplin had directed um, after starring in a bunch of films and apparently being a pretty much a nuisance and constantly suggesting things and wanting things to be done his way and not being a very easy star to work with at uh, Keystone Studios in the 19-teens. So eventually he was given the chance to direct uh, a short, and it went well, and that's how he got his start. And after a couple, that's when he made this one, The Masquerader, which is essentially about Charlie Chaplin coming to work at the studio, putting on his makeup, and then not getting along with his director and missing his cue because he's flirting with a woman and then getting into a fight and being chased all over the studio and then being thrown out of the studio, being fired for his poor behavior, and then sneaking back onto the lot in drag, in surprisingly impressive drag, actually, <laughs> uh, and then coming back to work as a woman getting rehired as a leading lady and then tricking and then basically going ha-ha on the director by revealing that he was the tramp all along. Uh, just classic early Chaplin, but I just love the idea that this guy who became one of the all-time great directors going, I can't, I can't be told what to do. I can't be bossed around by some director. I need to be in charge, and here's why, because if I don't need to be told when to make my cue and all these sorts of things. 
And it kind of plays almost as like a little bit of sour grapes at this point, you know, like, I'm so great. I deserve to be able to do whatever I want. Right. But then he would prove exactly why he does deserve that. But I just I love I love those early Chaplin shorts. And I think this one is a, quite interesting to watch in this context. Ch uh, Fandor has I didn't count, but probably between eight and 12 of his early shorts on there that you can watch and uh, all restored and, and beautiful looking. Uh, so this one is The Masquerader, and that is available on Fandor. Why should I help you? I gave you free cable. What have you ever done for me? Anything you want, just name it quickly. Tomorrow night we hang out. Fine, anything you want. God bless you. You're too good to me. You really are. with the cut cord. That's for effect. See you tomorrow, Stephen. She's pretty. Don't kiss her. Don't even touch her. Resist the urge at all costs. It'll pay off in the end. Huh? See what I'm saying? Okay, now it's time for our listener's choice section. Last episode, we asked you to choose from between the cable guy... Ganja and Hess, and Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives. And uh, even though there were some very uh, passionate people, you know, pleading for Ganja and Hess in the comments of the poll, it unfortunately did not win. Neither did, did Uncle Boonmi. The Cable Guy is the winner. It's currently streaming on Netflix and also on Crackle. Cable Guy was Ben Stiller's second film as a director after 1994's Reality Bites and was produced by Judd Apatow, who had also served as the executive producer, co-creator, and a writer on The Ben Stiller Show. The film was written by Lou Holtz Jr., who has no other credits to his name and is apparently now a deputy district attorney in San Fernando. Wow. Yes. Um, so Carrie was coming off two Ace Ventura movies of the t at this time and The Mask and Dumb and Dumber. So he's really at the height of his human cartoon character powers <laughs> when he took on the role of the unnamed cable guy who befriends and then stalks Stephen Kovacs, played by Matthew Broderick, a man who's recently moved to his own place after being broken up with by his girlfriend Robin, played by Leslie Mann, a.k.a. Mrs. Judd Apatow. This is actually the film on which they met. Now, Stephen and the cable guy, who introduces himself as Chip, are both guys who took comfort in TV when left to their own devices by their parents uh, a little too much in their childhoods. Though the extent to which that's true for Chip turns out to be much more extreme than anyone would ever imagine. And he quickly becomes this invasive and really threatening figure. And the film was not a critical success when it came out, though it had its defenders, uh, among them Jay Hoberman at The Village Voice, who put it in his top 10 that year. Mm. Uh, it tends to get thought of as a flop, though it actually wasn't a financial disaster. It was more of a disappointment given the fame of its, its main actor. So, Matt, my question to you is, uh, looking at the movie now, did, was this a Starship Troopers situation where the film was a victim of its own marketing that people expected a, a wacky Jim Carrey comedy and then were faced with a film that seemed more interested in using the actor's outsized persona for something more ominous? Interesting. I would say that it is to some degree a victim of marketing, but I'd say it's also a victim of that star and 
his presence and what he meant to audiences in the same way that Clint Eastwood meant certain things to audiences in the 1970s. Jim Carrey meant certain things to audiences in the mid-1990s. And I think one of the flaws of the movie still to this day is the fact that it seems to want to accommodate those audiences to a certain degree. I feel like there are scenes in this movie where it's Jim Carrey being Jim Carrey in a way that when I was 15 were probably my favorite parts of the movie. But as I look at it now, I realize are the weakest parts of the movie and that the movie would be much stronger as a whole if there wasn't so much of his shtick. There are a couple of scenes, and the one that I think of immediately is the scene with them playing basketball. There is a scene where the cable guy, who is now stalking his cable customer, Matthew Broderick, comes into a gym where Matthew Broderick and his buddies, including a very young Jack Black, are playing basketball, pick up basketball, and he inserts himself into the game. And there's this long montage of him being wacky and silly and warming up, doing this elaborate warm-up routine, which is like a minute-long sequence where he's just running back and forth across the floor, hitting different marks on the floor and skidding and being very silly and making funny faces. And then it all culminates with him doing this elaborate and insane dunk where he jumps on the back of Jack Black (laughs) to launch himself onto the rim and break the backboard, all in slow motion. It really doesn't fit with the more satirical and biting sort of humor in the film. And it's uh, to me, it just looks like an excuse to let Jim Carrey be Jim Carrey. And looking at it now, I really felt like maybe he's the biggest problem with the movie. What do you think? Well, he definitely is in a different type of movie than everyone else. Everyone yeah. else is in a fairly realistic movie. Yeah. You know, they have realistic jobs and they have a realistic breakup scenario, like in which they're not sure if they're broken up or not. And they're not sure what the rules are. And it's, you know, they still kind of like each other, but they don't know what their future is. And then you suddenly have this character who is just ridiculously outsized to that point where it's hard to believe that Matthew Broderick's character would be like, yes, let's hang out. You know, even in a, like at a vulnerable state in which right. he's suddenly all alone to be like, yes, I will indulge you. Scary, you know, rubbery faced, lisping, uh, invasive uh, guy who was just supposed to set up my cable. You know, <laughs> I mean, there are parts of the film that remind me a little bit of Jody Hill's Observe and Report with less tonal control than I yeah. think that film has in that like that film definitely seems to me to be uh, like almost a satire on and a rebuke of the kind of like a Will Ferrell type lovable loser uh, comedy, you know, in which the main character of that is not necessarily lovable, is kind of scary and threatening, and you wouldn't actually want to meet him in real life. Yeah. And in this case, it the film verges, uh, the cable guy verges into that territory sometimes, but doesn't quite seem to know where it stands. And I think you're right that it gives Jim Carrey a lot of room to just fool around sometimes and and you're not really sure why those are there yeah though i did think that there are times when it uses his like real weird physical comedy to a like kind of nicely threatening aspect Mm. like the part in the in the kind of final sequence where he like slides down uh the the satellite dish towards um matthew broderick in this way that's like almost snake it's like the grinch in how the grinch stole christmas i was like that is terrifying like you know it's funny and terrifying I, I, yeah, I like the comparison you make to Observe and Report and Jody Hill's comedy or anti-comedy. Anti-comedy, yeah. Yeah, it, the movie does feel in a lot of ways like a willful experiment in that it's sort of like, can we make a comedy out of something that's completely unfunny, which is like a fatal attraction style 
psychological stalking thriller, right? Which is not funny at all. And let's try to make a comedy. It'll act like a comedy. Right. Yeah. Right. Or at least let's try to make a movie like that using the techniques of comedy and using a cast that's out of a comedy, but basically making it just a not quite as dark version. And that is kind of interesting, but I feel like the examples you cited, like Observe and Report and maybe like The Foot Fist Way, which is a little funnier and not quite as dark, are more successful versions, I feel like. They have a better handle on how to marry the kind of darkness and also sadness with the humor. Where here, I think it needs to be like a third less wacky and a third more just seriously depressing you know what i mean yeah i agree i do think that there the when it does use its star right it it does do i mean like the instance i mentioned in the in the um on the satellite but also the scene that turns out to be a dream sequence in which jim carrey is has like strange contacts in and it's just running at the door at matthew broderick's character's yeah. door and it's seen through the peephole and it goes on and on and it's not really meant to be funny. It's actually very alarming. And I think it's because of also the viewpoint, the kind of fisheye viewpoint of the mm-hmm. peephole. Like, it's something very threatening about it. And I think it actually manages to turn that, like, this should be goofy, but it's actually terrifying. It does that very well. Uh, but I think there is another way in which this is ahead of its time, in that it's about a character who cannot talk about anything without referencing it to pop culture. I observe that as well. Yeah. And I think that I was wondering what you thought Annie, of that. It's an Annie Wilkes kind of situation where he also seems to recall certain elements of internet fanboy culture this guy who is entitled and a little bit spoiled and obsessed with television and movies and also really only kind of crappy television and movies like has no appreciation of the classics or great films or great television even it's all just the disposable defends water worlds (laughs) exactly (laughs) right exactly he's not only pushy and obsessive he has terrible taste dry land is not a myth I've seen it. (laughs) Right. So I did feel in a way that he was, in some sense, a cautionary figure in an interesting way. And the movie is prescient also in that he does have that thing where he says his little speech that he gives twice about how soon every home will integrate their television, phone, and computer. Yes. Absolutely correct. So true. And you this will is play, 1995 yeah. You will or play Mortal Kombat with your friend in Vietnam. Like, you totally you can. You totally can do that. The cable guy was correct in some <laughs> ways. And I do think also, you know, another way to look at the comedy of it, even though it's much broader than that, is it does also anticipate kind of the comedy of The Office, that awkward, icky, this guy's glomming on to me, doesn't realize how obnoxious and annoying he is kind of comedy. But again, just doesn't doesn't quite have the tone right. The Office would find that tone kind of correctly or find a way to actually make that both funny and kind of squirmy. Right. You know, the cable guy I don't think ever quite gets there, at least in terms of really hitting that right vein. Yeah, and I think, you know, another indication that it seemed like the film wanted to go darker than it actually did is the ongoing background story of the trial. The sweets, the brothers. Yes, the brothers, the twin child stars as adults played by Ben Stiller, the director. Right. Uh, one of whom murdered the other and he's on trial. And it's just like really it's kind of like the Menendez trial yeah. turned into a commentary on pop culture, essentially, right. because they're child actors. Right. And I love that they actually have, before the trial's even over, they have a TV movie with Eric Roberts <laughs> playing both of them. Uh, it was like Brother, My Brother or something like that. Uh, I, I mean, there is something about it never really ties in to the rest of the film. Like they're not sure thematically how to bring that in other than to be like, look at how, you know, TV soaked a culture we are maybe, but that, 
uh, it does seem to indicate that there's some larger idea that the film doesn't quite get it get a handle on yeah to some degree i just admire the movie because it is this fairly large movie i mean as as we i think said it was a huge payday for jim carrey and this was him at the height of his powers and here he's like well i'm gonna just destroy my image you don't often see an actor kind of take a sledgehammer to their their persona this early in their career i mean this is four or five movies into his leading man status and here he is taking that character and turning him as you said into something really kind of sinister and disturbing even though he's basically doing mostly the same shtick with the big oversized gestures and the funny voices and the faces so on a certain level i kind of admire the the ballsiness of this movie it is not an easy movie it's not a crowd pleaser in fact it's a crowd unpleaser it seems almost designed to upset please to displease is a crowd displeaser i guess is what we're saying that's probably the term right there yeah i mean right from the opening credits which i did hadn't remembered and obviously i'd seen this movie a few times but not in a few years now the opening credits which are set over sort of staticky images of television like a television flipping Jerry channels. springer and soap operas yeah and... and i just the fact that the images are so kind of blurry and and scratchy and they keep futzing in and out i almost felt like the it was like a, a statement of this movie is going to kind of be like this it's going to be kind of annoying and frustrating it's going to want it's going to make you want to get up and pound on the television so to speak mm-hmm. and that's what we're going to do intentionally and how are you going to react to that and i found that sort of interesting but again i just don't know if it gets all the way there yeah and you know it almost seems in that sequence and then in the whole sweets trial to be setting up to be a critique of watching too much tv and that but then it doesn't ever really go there well just in the fact that the cable guy is a cautionary figure right he's been sort of destroyed and rotted out by television that's not a question of necessarily television as much as it is lack of normal contact Uh right that he's been abandoned basically and to fill in the void there was tv while his mom left him behind we see in that flashback right but that it's not necessarily like tv that's the problem it's just an inadequate substitute for actual human interaction right and ben stiller does this interesting thing where a lot of the film is scored by you'll hear in the score moments from other scores that you recognize from television and film which is effective and it does suggest the interior mind right the interior mind of jim carrey's character who also does kind of provide his own music most effectively in the scene set at medieval times yes which is great (laughs) yes which is certainly the comic highlight of the film is the long sequence at medieval times where he makes Matthew Broderick's character fight him. But just the idea that he would know the Star Trek score that well, like that moment. Right, and he (laughs) would provide it. The instrumentals. Right, and he even says later, real life doesn't have its own danger music, and that's why he starts providing it. By using all these great musical moments in the actual score, it in some way negates the criticism because it shows, look at all these great things that movies and TV do do. And if you're really telling me that movies and TV and all that rot my brain, 
and you're making a movie that kind of uses those beats to its own advantage. I don't know. It does, I don't know if that's playing fair in some way. Well, and also Matthew Broderick and Robin, or his his girlfriend character, Robin, they're boring. You know, when you see they're them, very boring. when you see them kind of trying to patch up their relationship, it's not interesting. You don't want to see a movie that's just about them. That was the last thing I wanted to mention before we wrap it up was Leslie Mann, who, as we said, is now Judd Apatow's wife. And the female lead in a lot of his movies including knocked up and his upcoming movie where she does have a lot more personality but what i just thought was so interesting was how incredibly bland she is in this movie she gets nothing funny to do i mean she has almost no personality and i thought it was interesting because of that stereotype in a lot of his movies that the guys get all the fun they get all the jokes and here might be the worst example, and it's ironic because this is the one where he, they met and fell in love, and then he made her the lead in all of her movies. And she's great in some of the later movies, and she just brings absolutely nothing to it. But it's not her fault. The, the movie gives her nothing to do. I know. I almost had trouble recognizing her. I was trying to think. Like, I was like, that actress, who is she? Like, I know her. I can't place her. It's because she is, like, in a non-role. And that's The Cable Guy. It's available on Netflix and on Crackle. Before we give you your options for next episode's Listener's Choice Review, we close out the show with our Behind the Eight Ball segment. This is where we count down three new releases, two expiring titles, and one random movie from our queue. Allison and I, before we start recording, each pick a random number, and whatever that number is, we tell you what corresponds with that number from our Netflix queue at the moment. Be it fascinating, embarrassing, interesting, unusual, whatever it may be. Allison, you are going to start this week. Yes. We try to do this kind of rapid-fire style, so we're just going to power through these very quickly. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay, here we go. Three new releases. Okay, my first one is The Day Trippers, 1996. It is on Hulu. It's the first film from Greg Matola, who'd go on to direct Superbad and Adventureland, and has the supremely indie cast of Parker Posey, Liev Schreiber, Stanley Tucci, and Hope Davis as uh, characters who are on a, a road trip to see if Hope Davis's character's husband is cheating on her. And that is on Hulu. Collapse 2009 is on Netflix Watch Instantly, directed by Chris Smith, who also did American Movie. This is uh, an apocalyptic documentary, if that's possible, featuring Michael Rupert, just a monologue from him, basically, as he chain smokes and talks about how the world is going to end due to peak oil issues and more. It's either a predictor of the apocalypse or an alarmist conspiracy theorist. That is on Netflix. And finally, Time Out 2008. That is on Netflix as well. From uh, director Laurent Conté. It is a film about a French businessman who gets fired from his job and lies to his family about it, just takes drives in the country, and actually seems a lot happier pretending to be employed, even inventing a fake job at the U.N., and that is Time Out on Netflix. Okay, and two expiring titles. All right, these are both on Netflix, and they are expiring June 15th. They are It Came From Kuchar, a 2009 doc from director Jennifer M. Krutz. It's a very affectionate one about the twin underground filmmakers George and Mike Kuchar. And the other one is Visioneers, which is a 2008 indie that didn't get a lot of attention, but kind of deserves a bit. Uh, directed by Jared Drake and starring Zach Galifianakis. Uh, it's set who's, who's that? 
Uh, some guy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in a future where people are, ex- it's like a near future where people are exploding from stress, set in an office of the largest corporation in the world, in which people do things like periodically shoot themselves in the head with guns that aren't loaded. Just wow. a stress relief. Wow. Yes. Yeah, so that is Visioneers. Okay. And one random movie from your queue. You gave me number 49. Okay. Which, and then I told you this was a movie whose title I wasn't actually sure how to pronounce, but I looked it up and they, someone suggested Adavik. Which is the film from director Bruno Dumont, who did 29 Palms. Yes. Uh, not necessarily one of my favorite directors, though an interesting and often difficult one. And this is his 2009 film. It is about a French schoolgirl who's extremely religious and was an aspiring nun until she's actually kicked out for being too religious and falls in instead with a radical Muslim. All right, Matt, now it's your turn. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, give me three new titles. Okay, first up, Surrogate Valentine, which is going to be available on June 15th on Netflix. This is a nice little indie film. It's about a musician played by a real-life musician, essentially playing a version of himself named Go Nakamura. And it is set in San Francisco, and it is about his life and his love and has a lot of really nice music in it. He's hired to train a actor to act like a musician for an, an indie film so it has a film within a film kind of thing going on and has a lot of great music a lot of nice black and white cinematography of san francisco so that's surrogate valentine on netflix on available on fandor you have invasion usa which is a classic alfred e green red scare movie a what if scenario what if the united states was invaded by an unnamed communist superpower i'm i couldn't imagine which one it could possibly be there were so many to choose from in the 1950s uh and last but not least the war room which is available on hulu plus this is uh from the criterion collection on hulu this is the documentary by d.a pennebaker and chris hegedus uh behind the scenes of the first clinton presidential campaign made stars of its protagonists james carville and george stephanopoulos who's now like a tv host he is so there you go so that's the war room and that's on hulu plus okay two expiring films okay you have poison which is expiring on june 21st on netflix that's todd haynes's very first film and a key text in the new queer cinema movement and you also have expiring on june 21st on netflix make out with violence which is you described one of your films as a, a little indie that deserved more attention I would describe this one exactly the same way. It's about two twin brothers who find their friend who had died. They find their body not entirely dead. So it's kind of a weird indie zombie romance coming of age story with a little (laughs) bit of other things going on. So let's make out with violence on Netflix. Okay, and one from your queue. You gave me number 32, which currently is My Son John. This is a film by Leo McCary, the director of The Awful Truth and Duck Soup and Make Way for Tomorrow. And this is a film about a mother played by Helen Hayes who goes to Washington to find out if her son is, in fact, a communist. And I put this on there. Somebody had put together a list of interesting movies that were not available on other formats that were available on streaming. And this was one, Leo McCary making all those great movies. And I had never seen this one, so I put that one on there. That's My Son John. All right, let's move on now to our options for next episode's Listener's Choice Review. Your first pick is actually a fairly recent movie released this year. Just a few months ago, I saw the trailer in theaters, and now it is available on Hulu. It is called Under African Skies. It is directed by Joe Berlinger, who is the fine documentary director of the Paradise Lost series of films about the 
famous West Memphis Three murders. This is a slightly lighter subject. It is about the album Graceland by Paul Simon. I think the anniversary, the 25th anniversary of the album came this year, and the film documents the making of the album. So that's Under African Skies, and it is available now on Hulu. Okay, our second choice is Opening Night, the John Cassavetes film from 1977. It is also on Hulu. Since we didn't have any Cassavetes in our streaming picks uh, earlier, actors turned directors. Cassavetes is, is one of the like, guys. He's one of the guys. And we yeah. kind of felt bad that we didn't put him in there. We could have, but, but we yeah. had other movies we wanted to talk about more. Yeah. But we thought let's throw in one that we haven't seen. Yes, as a listener's choice pick. So yeah. neither of us has seen Opening Night. Yeah, and it's about a Broadway actress played by Gina Rollins, who's in rehearsals for her latest play when she suffers an emotional breakdown of sorts in her personal life after a fan dies trying to see her. Okay, so, so that's Opening Night. It is on Hulu. Okay, and our third option, nearly as good as both of those <laughs> movies, but. Much, much worse at the same time. It is Cutthroat Island, which is available on Netflix. This is one of the most infamous bombs of all time. And when you say the most infamous bombs of all time, Allison and I get interested. I don't know why, but maybe it's just deep, deep masochism. Yeah, I don't know. If this one wins, this will be three weeks in a row or so. Not three weeks in a row, but it'll be a few weeks of... Uh... Of, of episodes of films that just really weren't well-received. Maybe we like doing it, or maybe <laughs> listeners like hearing us talk about them. But either way, this is your third option. It is the infamous movie directed by Rennie Harlan, starring Gina Davis and Matthew Modine. It's a pirate movie, got legendarily bad reviews, made almost no money. It bankrupted a studio. It already helped to bankrupt a studio. Just a disastrous, disastrous film. But somehow... I've never seen this one. I have not either. So Somehow. Somehow. Uh, we've missed it. So we're willing or maybe perhaps curious to subject ourselves to it. So that is your third option, Cutthroat Island, available on Netflix. Okay. Well, which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? Send your pick to feedback at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, June 18th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will go up on Monday, June 25th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you'll find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. And let's reiterate one more time that this is the last episode of SVU that's going to be in the main Film Spotting feed. So be sure to go to iTunes and subscribe to the Film Spotting streaming video unit feed so you keep getting the episodes. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash Allison Wilmore and twitter.com slash Matt Singer. And, of course, you can follow the show at twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. That's where we announce the winner of each week's listener's choice. And we share more streaming suggestions from you, the SVU listeners. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.